For the past few months, we've been going through, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. We've been going verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we've been studying all of the rich and amazing things, the glorious things that God has to say to us here in this book. And today, we come to the end of this, uh, this letter, this book. We come to the last section of Ephesians. And this is what we read. This is how the last section, the final section of Ephesians begins in verse 10. Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is the word of the Lord for us here today. And what an important word it is. What an important message it is. Be strong. Be strong in the strength of the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You know, in many ways, here's one of the reasons why this is such an important, such a pertinent message for us today, for not only our church, but Christianity as a whole. And that's because this, I think that in recent decades, perhaps even recent generations, what we've experienced is what we might call the sissification of the saints, right? The, uh, the wimpification of Christianity, right? And I believe that in part that is due to a Christian culture which has developed, which emphasizes sensitivity and vulnerability. It emphasizes introspection rather than this exhortation here, which is so important, this exhortation to be strong in the strength of the Lord, to stand firm, to resist, and to fight. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I, I, I think we could even refer to it as jammy Christianity, right? It's all about let's get together and we'll have a slumber party and we'll wear our jammies and we'll all be vulnerable together, right? But, but here, notice this. You've got to have this balance here. This is an important message from God's word. Be strong, right? Be strong. Stand firm and fight, Fight for what is right, what is good. Fight for what God wants, for what God cares about. Fight for what is good and right and true. Go to war for it. Fight for it. Be active. And, and here's why. Let me tell you this. It's because life is a battlefield. You know that? Life is a battlefield. Many of you know that all too well. That life here on planet Earth, it's not always a walk in the park. There is so much beauty in this life. There's so much that God has blessed us with. But at the same time, we know that this is a broken world that we live in. There are tragedies, as we've experienced recently. There are casualties, and there is evil, right? Evil is a reality that each and every one of us has to face and has to deal with in this life. And for that reason, Paul, here at the end of the book of Ephesians, he paints a picture for us, and the picture is this. Life is a battlefield. Life is a battlefield. There's an enemy, and he's on the attack, right? And we're encouraged in this way. If you don't want to be a casualty of war, if you don't want to be taken down and taken out and destroyed when the attacks come, then you need to do three things. Number one, you need to be strong. Number two, you need to stand firm. And number three, you need to fight. Okay? Um, the good news, though, is, and that's what this section is about, the good news is that God has given us all that we need, all the resources that we need, not only to survive this battle, but to be victorious with him in this battle. Let's read on from verse 10. Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Here's what God's word's telling us. Life is a battlefield. There's a war going on. There's a spiritual battle. There's an enemy who's on the prowl looking to take people down, looking to take people out. So be strong in the strength of the Lord. Get dressed and go to fight. You know, many times though, the message in, in modern Christianity so many times isn't this message. It isn't be strong and, and put on your armor and go and fight. Rather, it's be vulnerable and put on your jammies. And let's have a slumber party and talk about our feelings, right? Imagine if the, the American troops went into a war zone, right? They go into a war zone dressed in, you know, those footy pajama things. You know what I'm talking about? Onesies. And they're all, you know, D-Day, running, storming the beaches of Normandy, carrying, I don't know, journals and wearing pajamas, right? No, they'd be wiped out. They'd be taken down. You know, what I've found is this, in counseling couples, counseling individuals, I found this to be such an important message, right? Such a thing that people need to hear these days and be told, be strong. That's the message. Be strong. Be strong in the strength of the Lord. Put on the armor of God and go fight. Go fight for what God cares about. Go fight for what's right and true. So many people get stuck, right? They get stuck focused on how they've been treated, how they've been hurt, rather than strengthening themselves in the Lord and going to battle. And many times you see people who get stuck and they're just spinning in circles because they're just focused on the wrong thing. Sometimes we need to be told, be strong, put on your armor, and go to war. Go fight. I think another common mistake that people make is that they lose sight of who the true enemy is, right? Don't forget who your real enemy is. The text tells us here that the real battle that's going on is an invisible battle. It's a battle that is being waged in the spiritual realms. It's not against flesh and blood, but there are powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Many times, that's the problem, that we lose sight of who the real enemy is. We think the enemy is our spouse. We think the enemy is that person who's doing that thing to us, right? We think that the enemy is the liberals or or this or that political or social agenda that we need to go fight against. You know what? Here's the thing. The real enemy, the real battle is against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places that are at the root, that are in the background of all of these things that are wrong in the, in the world. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read the story of Saul and David. It's one of my favorite books. I get so much out of it. I was reading it recently, actually, and I wanted to share this with you because I think it totally pertains to what we're talking about. In the book of 1 Samuel, if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, I'm going to be kind of running you through the book, and then we'll go from 27 to 30 real quickly. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read the story of Saul and David, right? Saul was the first king of Israel. He was chosen by God. You know that? He was chosen by God, and he actually started out as a very good king and actually a very godly man but as time progressed Saul changed and Saul ceased to be a man after God's own heart that's how he had started out but it ceased it changed Saul became a man who was completely consumed 
with his image. He was completely consumed with what other people thought of him. And he cared more about what people thought of him than what God thought of him. And he began to disregard the word of God. He began to disregard God's word. He began to do things that were actually in direct opposition to God's heart and God's will and God's word to him. And because of that, it says there that God rejected Saul as king over Israel. And he chose another man in his place, a man who would be a king after God's own heart. That man's name was David. He was just a boy at the time, but he was a man after God's own heart. But here's the thing, though, that happens. This is what's kind of the interesting thing about this, uh, this book of 1 Samuel. You see that David's anointed king in the middle of the book, but yet the story goes on and David doesn't ever become king until 2 Samuel, right? So what happened was that although God had rejected Saul as king over Israel, even though David had been anointed king, Saul refused to step down. He refused to give up his position. Saul was so threatened by David that he determined to take him out. He determined to kill him. In fact, it started out where he would just kind of try to kill him. He'd like throw spears at him. No, he's probably not going to hit him. And then he asked some other guys to go out and kill him. But Saul got to the point where he said, I want you guys to catch him so that I can kill him with my own two hands. So here's what Saul did. He, he began hunting David, right? And David is on the run. He's living in caves. He's hiding out. It's when a lot of the Psalms are written. Because Saul, he's the king of Israel. And as king, he has the entire army of the nation at his disposal. So he takes the whole army and he sends him out on this mission to seek and destroy David. He says, I want you to find him. I want you to hold on to him so I can kill him with my own two hands. David, he's got a few hundred men with him, right? These are men who are loyal to him, but a few hundred men armed with very little weapons. They're no match for the army of Israel. So what happens there in 1 Samuel 27 is that David, he's been hiding out. He's been on the run for a while, and he says, you know what? I will never be safe. He's going to get me sooner or later. The only place I will be safe is if I seek refuge in the land of the Philistines. So David and his men, they go and they ask for asylum in the land of the Philistines. They become refugees. They become exiles living in the land of the Philistines. You remember they were, they were the enemies of God's people. And uh, he knew that that's the one place where Saul's army wouldn't dare to go and try to get him because it would be a war. The Philistines were actually, you know, quite welcoming to David. They were nicer to him than the people of God were. What a shame that is, right? When the people who don't know God and don't love God are kinder and more generous than the people who do bear the name of God. Let that never be true of us. But here's the deal. The Philistines were super kind to David and they said, David, you and all your guys, you're welcome to live in our land. And you know what? We'll even give you your own city. You guys can just be there and do your own thing out in the wilderness. And the city he gave them, the name of it was Ziklag, right? It's kind of a cool name. I was thinking of naming my kid that, but then Rosemary was like, nah. So, uh... Uh, the city Ziklag where David and, and his loyal men they go out and they, they live there and actually they live there in relative peace and prosperity things are good for the time that they're there probably a few years you know 
During that time in Ziklag, they had peace. There's nobody chasing them anymore. They don't have to look over their shoulder all the time. They're not living in caves, right? Things are nice. They have peace and security. They're able to have kids and, you know, have a yard and a pool and, you know, all that stuff. So maybe not the pools, but they were able to, you know, have peace and prosperity. But here's the thing. There's this kind of cloud hanging over from chapter 27 on. There's this kind of cloud and this kind of thing. It's ominous because you're like, at some point, you know that the Philistines are going to ask David to go to war with, with them against Israel, right? And finally, that day happens. The king of the Philistines comes to David and he says, David, here's your chance to prove yourself, to prove that you really are one of us, that you really, you know, belong to us. He says, we're going to battle against Israel and I want all you and your men to come to battle against us. And this is quite the conundrum, you gotta understand, right? Because David has this promise from God that he's gonna be king of Israel. He's gonna be the leader of God's people, right? And so there's this looming question of will David actually do it? Will he go to battle? Will he fight against God's people, right? Will he become a traitor? How can he ever become king if he goes to battle with the enemies of God against God's people? How could he ever be king after that? Probably he never could. It's quite the conundrum. What's going to happen? So David and his men, they agree to do it. David says, yeah, we'll do it. You know, we'll go fight against Israel. I believe that was a big mistake. But here's what happens. They leave their women and children at home in Ziklag and they go out and they go to the front line where the Philistines are about to attack the nation of Israel. But once they get to the, the, the battle lines, some other Philistines see David and his men there and they say, hey, wait a minute. What are those guys doing here? They're like, hey, wait a second. They can't fight with us. What if this is just some con, right? What if it's just a trap? That these guys were just trying to weasel their way into our army so that once we go to battle, they can just wipe us all out from the inside, right? They're like, we don't trust them. We think this is a trick. The king of the Philistines says to David, he goes, he says, look, David, I know you're a solid guy, but these guys don't know you the way that I know you. They, they don't trust you. So he said, just for the sake of those men, I'm just going to say you guys don't have to go to war with us. Just go ahead and go back home and go back to your women and children in Ziklag. I, I think that was the providence of God, right? He didn't allow David to do something terrible, something that would ruin his future, right, by going to war against his own people, the children of Israel. But here's the deal, and this is really what I'm trying to get to. As David and his men return to Ziklag, they've been gone for quite some time now, they, they return home to find a tragedy. You know what the tragedy was? While they were away on the front line preparing to fight against their own countrymen, the Amalekites had come and raided their city and set it on fire, burned it to the ground, and they had kidnapped all of their women and all of their children. They kidnapped everybody, all their kids, and they burned their houses to the ground and stole all their possessions. Now try to put yourself in their shoes. I guess you could say that's, a, that's kind of a bit of a setback, right? Yeah, to say the least, it's kind of a bummer, right? You know, if somebody kidnaps your spouse and your kids and then robs you of all your possessions and then burns your house to the ground, that, that doesn't feel very good, right? It kind of ruins your day and you might feel a little bit of disappointment, right? You might feel a little bit hurt if somebody did that to you. 
And it says there this, it says, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter of soul, each for his sons and daughters. Not only had David lost his own family and his own home and all of his possessions, but now the people are all angry against him. They're, they're blaming him for all of their losses and they're saying, David, this is all your fault. This is all your fault. If you hadn't taken us out there to fight against our own countrymen, then this never would have happened. We'd still have our families. We'd still have our homes. This was a bad idea anyway that you would want to even fight against God's people. How could you do that? This is all your fault. What were you thinking? Now we all have to suffer because you made a bad move. So they're so angry with David that they want to kill him, right? And David, needless to say, great understatement here, was greatly distressed that's because we don't have better words for that to really I mean he's like greatly distressed right and David knew all too well something that we need to learn and that's this life is a battlefield David knew that no surprise to him life is a battlefield many of you know that many of you have experienced that in your own lives you know that there's an enemy who is on the prowl and he is seeking to steal kill and destroy but here's the point, and this is what I want you to see. Look at what David did. How did David respond? Because the question is, for you and I, how do we respond? How do we react when the enemy attacks, right? When the enemy tries to rob us and cause destruction in our lives. When the enemy attacks our families, when the enemy attacks our marriages and tries to destroy them, when he tries to get into our lives and kill our relationship with God, or or take those things from us which are good and which he loves. How should we react when we're under attack? Well, look at how David reacted when he faced a setback, when he was greatly distressed, when he felt alone and disappointed. First of all, we read this amazing phrase, David strengthened himself in the Lord. David strengthened himself in the Lord. I find that phrase so intriguing. What does that mean? What does it mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord? What does that look like? How do you do that, right? For David, here's what it meant. It meant reminding himself of who God is and what God's promises to him were. Reminding himself of who God is and what God's promises to him were. He was reminding himself, God is strong. God is powerful. God is sovereign. God is providential. And God is redemptive. He can even take bad situations and use them for his good, for our good, and for his glory. That's a redemptive God. And God had promised David something. He promised him that he would be king of Israel. So here's what David does. He reminds himself of the promises of God, of, of who God is, and he strengthens himself in the Lord. That's something we see David doing throughout the Psalms. Whenever he's weak, whenever he's on the point of despair, when he can't take it anymore, he strengthens himself in the Lord, reminds himself of who God is, and reminds himself of the promises of God to him. This is what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He's saying, be strong in the strength of the Lord. Maybe you say, I don't feel strong right? I don't, I don't feel even strong enough to pick myself up from this setback and move on from this thing that's happened. I don't feel strong enough even in this given situation to do the right thing, the thing that I know is right and good in God's eyes. I don't feel strong enough to do it. Well, here's the point. 
Don't rely on your own strength, but be strong in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might, right? Strengthen yourself in the Lord by clinging to his promises and reminding yourself of who he is for you, right? That in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. That his might is sufficient for you. That's the first way that we are to respond to setbacks, to loss, to disappointment. When the enemy causes destruction in your life, you strengthen yourself in the Lord. It's so important to be strong in the Lord. You know that? I'll give you one reason why. It's important to be strong in the Lord, and here's why. Because no matter who you are, somebody is taking cues from you. Somebody's looking to you for leadership. Somebody's following you. And that person, those people, whoever they are in your life, they need you to be strong in the strength of the Lord because they're taking their cues from you. Mom, dad, you need to be strong because you got little people who are taking cues from you, right? Whether you're aunt, uncle, brother, sister, boss, cousin, friend, whoever you are, there's somebody who's looking to you and taking cues from you and they need you to be strong for them in the strength of the Lord. In the first chapter of the book of Joshua, you, maybe some of you know the story, God tells Joshua three times, that's a lot of times, right? Three times in just a few verses, he says, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. Be strong and be very courageous. <coughs> You know why? Here's the situation. Joshua had to step up and lead at that point because Moses, the great leader of the people who had led them through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land, he had passed away. And now it was Joshua's turn up to bat, right? He's got to go stand there. He, he's got to go now, right? And God's word to him is this, be strong and very courageous. Why? Because there are three million people looking to you to take cues. There's three million people following you, looking to you for leadership. The children of Israel, right, they're ready to move on into this land of promise, this land flowing with milk and honey. But it's also a land that's full of giants and a land where there's going to be battle, where there's going to be warfare. See, even the promised land was a battlefield, so now it's time for Joshua to step up and lead, and this is the word of the Lord. Be strong and very courageous. There are three million people looking to you for leadership, and they need you to be strong. And here's what's interesting, if you get, check it out in your Bible, it's Joshua chapter one. The last two verses of the chapter, I think it's 17 and 18, uh, not only does God tell Joshua three times that he needs to be strong and courageous, but the people of Israel, they say to him, Joshua, we love you, man. We're behind you. We're going to follow you and let you lead us all the way. We're with you. But here's the one thing that we ask of you, Joshua. We will follow you, but we just ask this. We want you to be strong and courageous for us. That's the kind of leader we want you to be, one who's strong and courageous. So husbands, parents, I need to tell you this, the people you are leading, they want you to be strong and courageous for them. It's not just what God is calling you to be. It's that the people who are following you, who are looking to you, they want that too. They want you to courageously walk in the ways of the Lord so that they can follow. They want you to be strong in the strength of the Lord. Whoever you are, someone's looking to you. I'd encourage you, you who don't feel strong, I promise you that all of the resources you need are found in Jesus Christ. Remember how David strengthened himself? He reminded himself of who God was and he reminded himself of the promises of God to him. 
And that's exactly what we've done here in our study through Ephesians, just to tie it all up for you. We've been studying who God is and what God's promises are to us in the gospel. And we've been talking about how those work out in our lives practically. And here's one major way. It makes us strong in the strength of the Lord. So getting back to David, here's the deal. He faced setbacks, he faced disappointments, loss, attacks from the enemy. How does he react? Number one, he strengthens himself in the Lord. And number two, look at the next thing he does. He seeks the Lord. He strengthens himself in the Lord and he seeks the Lord. It says in the next uh, couple verses, David said to the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod so abathar brought the ephod to david and david inquired of the lord shall i pursue after this band shall i overtake them and he answered him and said pursue you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue what do we do when we face setbacks loss attacks disappointments first strengthen yourself in the lord second seek the lord for direction for wisdom for guidance and here's the third thing that david did he went out and he fought he went out and he fought. He went and went to battle and took back that which the enemy had taken from him. In verse 9, it says that David took with him 600 men and he pursued the Amalekites. And in verse 18, we read that David and all his men, they recovered everything that the Amalekites had taken. Every son, every daughter, every possession. Life is a battlefield. Here's an example that we have from God's word of what we are to do when we're faced with adversity and setbacks and attacks from the enemy. Strengthen yourself in the Lord, seek the Lord, and fight. Fight the good fight of faith. You know, that's how Paul described the Christian life to his protege, Timothy. He told him, Timothy, I want you to get out there and I want you to fight. That's, that's his description of the Christian life. It is, that has to be the least passive word in our language, right? Fight. It's the opposite of passivity, right? It means actively pursuing, working, struggling for something. And that is the encouragement of God's word to us. Fight the good fight of faith because life is a battlefield. Make sure you're dressed right. Clothe yourself in the gospel. That's what we're going to read next. And fight the good fight of faith. Paul says this, he says in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And now he goes on and he lists for us what this armor of God is. And here's what it comes down to. Five defensive tools that protect us from the attacks of the enemy and one offensive tool. And then we're told how to fight. We'll read it here. Stand firm, therefore, this is verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. The first tool we read about, the defensive tool, is the belt of truth. You know, a Roman soldier would wear a belt on the outside of his, of his armor. The belt was important because it held everything together. You see, I, I believe, and I, I'm convinced, actually, that one of the main battlegrounds of spiritual warfare, one of the places where it takes place the most, is in our minds. You know why? Because Jesus told us that Satan, he gave him a name. He said, you know who he is? He's the father of lies. You know what he does? That's his M.O. He lies. He tells you lies. One of the greatest ways that the enemy attacks you is by whispering lies. 
You know that to your heart, to your ears, to your spirit. He whispers things to you, gives you these thoughts, right? No one loves you. You're just a nuisance. It'd be so much better if you were gone, right? No one wants you. You're worthless. Or, or hey, you know, eat the forbidden fruit and you will be happy. You see, these are lies. We have to recognize them for such. It's important that we be clothed with the belt of truth, that we have this on us. We have it tied around us, the truth of God's word, that we would recognize the lies of Satan for what they are, that we would be able to resist them because we know the truth. So when those lies come, we're able to withstand. Next, we have this breastplate of righteousness, right? A breastplate would cover your heart, your vital organs. The Jews believed that the vital organs were the center of the emotions. So the breastplate of righteousness is about protecting your heart. It's about guarding your emotions, that no matter what you feel in any given moment, that we fall back on the knowledge that we have been made righteous in Christ. And when Satan comes with words of condemnation, when we don't feel forgiven, when we don't feel saved, we look to the cross. We look to the the righteousness that has been given to us because Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Next, we have the shoes, which are the gospel of peace. You know, a Roman soldier would wear these shoes, which are kind of like baseball cleats, right? They'd have metal studs in the bottom of them. The purpose for that was so they could stand their ground, right? So they wouldn't slip, so they wouldn't slide around, so they could dig in and stand firm. And that's what the gospel of peace is for us. It is firm footing, right? It keeps us grounded. It keeps us in the right spot. That's why a wife feels we take communion almost every week because we want to be reminded of the gospel in a tangible way that Jesus gave us to be reminded of the gospel, that we might stand firm, that we might not slip, that we might be on firm footing and in the right spot. The shield of faith, a shield is something that you hold. It's something that moves with you with different varying attacks, attacks from above, attacks from the side. That's what faith does. It's something you hold on to and it is able to fight against all of the varied attacks that come against you. It's the trust, it's active trust in God's promises. Next, we have the helmet of salvation. The knowledge of your salvation protects your head, all right? You know, I don't know if you ever watched the NFL, so I watched the NFL, and, and you know, you ever see, like, it happens at least a couple times a week, somebody's running and their helmet gets popped off, right? Whenever that happens, i like, oh, I'm holding my breath, like, man, that's dangerous. That guy could get seriously injured if he's not wearing that helmet. There have been a couple times where I've gone out mountain biking and I arrive at the mountain and then I realize I left my helmet at home. Let me tell you what, I ride a whole lot different when I'm not wearing my helmet. That's the deal. When you have that knowledge, that assurance that you are saved, it gives you an incredible amount of confidence in the midst of the battle. You know that you're locked in, that you're with the Lord. See, these are the things that we need to navigate the battlefield. But then I'm going to close with this. This is how we are to wage war. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication because it's a spiritual battle. But here's interesting. I I noticed this as I was studying. Notice this thing. One thing specifically that Paul encourages them to pray for directly. 
verse 18. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me. Why? That words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Did you catch that? This is our offensive attack. This is our weapon. This is the way that we take ground. Here it is. It's the gospel. It all comes back to the gospel, right? In this spiritual battleground that is this life, we are to clothe ourselves with the gospel. We are to pro- that's what protects us from the attacks of the enemy. And then we're to go into battle with what? With the gospel. That's how we wage war against the powers of darkness, by bringing in the light of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. The gospel, that message that you are more sinful than you even know, but yet in Christ, you are more loved by God than you could ever dare dream right? The gospel, that message that you were lost and you were dead in your sin, but God, but God because of his great love for you. He came to you in Christ that he might redeem you, that he might save you, that he might forgive you, that he might adopt you and give you a new identity and a new name and a new future, right? It's that gospel that we take up. It's that gospel that we go into battle with. It's the gospel, this message of truth in the face of lies. It's the message of freedom for those who are in bondage. It's the message of strength to the weak. It's the message of healing to the broken. It's this gospel that is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And that is how we fight. That's how we fight for our kids. That's how we fight for our marriages. That's how we fight for our own souls. That's how we fight for those around us who are lost, by embracing and proclaiming the liberating message of the gospel of truth. We take up the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and with prayer and supplication, we proclaim this great gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the theme of this book, and I'm gonna end here. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. True hope for each and every one of us. True hope for our city. That's why we're doing this event next week, because we believe that this is the hope for our community, and it is the hope for the nations. So I encourage you, as we close this book, be strong in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might, and clothe yourself with the gospel that you might be ready to withstand all the attacks of the enemy on your heart and on your mind and take up that gospel, the power of God to salvation for all who believe with prayer and supplication, go and fight. Fight to take back what the enemy has tried to steal and kill and destroy and fight to set free that which the enemy has taken captive by continually pointing to Jesus and looking to the the cross. And this is the closing of the book and my closing for us as well. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you for that love that you have for us. Love incorruptible. Thank you for the gospel of peace. Thank you for the gospel of our salvation, Lord. It's a helmet for our head. It's a, it's a breastplate to protect us, Lord. It's a shield. Our faith in the gospel is a shield through which we are able to defend against all the attacks of the enemy. Lord, would you help us to be strong? I pray for anyone in here today who's not strong, who's feeling weak, who's feeling defeated, who's feeling like they've suffered setbacks and disappointments. 
Lord, would you strengthen them in your strength? Would you help them to strengthen themselves in your promises and who you are? Lord, help us to stand firm in the battleground that is this life. And Lord, would you help us to fight the good fight of faith? We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.